gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are going to talk about a big batch of new fall releases. Including Bruce Springsteen and PJ Harvey. You are listening to Sound Opinions, and time now, Jim, to run down some of the biggest releases of the fall. This Absolutely. This is the time of the year when the record industry starts rolling out the big guns. Hopefully, it's going to sell a lot of records. It's hoping for similar success for the records we're going to talk about today that it had a few weeks ago with the Kanye West and 50 Cent records, both of which sold a combined total of nearly 2 million records yeah. in their first week. Remains to be seen whether these records will do the same, but these are the releases they're counting on to save its year. We'll see if they do it. So they paved paradise, put up a parking lot With a pink hotel, a boutique and a swinging night spot Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you got till it's gone They paved paradise, put up a parking lot Familiar song, familiar singer, new arrangement. That, of course, is Big Yellow Taxi, Joni Mitchell's protest song from the 60s. They paved paradise, put up a parking lot. She has revisited it on her new album called Shine, her first album of new songs in nine years. Joni Mitchell, a woman who said a few years ago that she was done with the music industry as we know it, she called it a cesspool. Yeah, but that was before Starbucks (laughs) got involved and offered her a lot of money. You know what? She couldn't resist, I'm sure. Uh, She saw what happened with Paul McCartney, a man who's had good success putting out his record outside of the traditional music industry, getting in bed with Starbucks, hear music, having his record promoted continuously at Starbucks coffee shops all around the world. I'd like to remind people here (laughs) that I interviewed several Starbucks managers. The the CD players in Starbucks literally get locked in. So on the day of release, you can only play the McCartney or the Joni Mitchell. How insidious is that? And and that's appealing to a singer who is now 63 years old, who has essentially been written off by the music industry. Her music does not get played on radio, commercial radio anymore, but she does have a lot of fans out there. She's an artist who has remained incredibly relevant. She had a few pop hits in the late 60s, early early 70s, uh, started veering towards more of a jazz mode in the mid-70s, where she's been ever since. That pretty much locked her out of commercial pop radio, but she's an incredibly well-respected songwriter. This year alone, Jim, there have been two major Joni Mitchell tribute records. There was one that came out uh, about six months ago on the Nonesuch label that included artists like Prince and Bjork doing her song, Sufjan Stevens. Just this week, Herbie Hancock has done his own tribute to Joni Mitchell. She's an artist who has influenced two or three generations of songwriters, not just female songwriters, but uh, across the board, because she's one of the most inventive lyricists 
voice. Her sense of harmonics and tone are one of a kind. She has established a sound that is her own. Joni Mitchell sounds like no one else. So it's good to hear her back. She's back with a new album. As we said, first new album of original songs in nine years. She's putting it out on the Hear Music Starbucks label. It's going to be in those coffee shops all over America. <laughs> Let's get a taste of what she's up to. Here's a song that I think Jim is representative of the kind of mood that Joni Mitchell is setting on her new record called Shine. It's called Bad Dreams on Sound Opinions. The cats are in the flower bed A red hawk rides the sky I guess I should be happy Just to be alive But we have poisoned everything And oblivious to it all The cell phone zombies babble Through the shopping malls While condors far from Indian skies Whales beach and die in sand Joni Mitchell's Bad Dreams from her first album, In Forever, available at a uh, coffee shop near you. It's called Shine. Greg, let's remind folks what we do on these record review shows. We set up, explain the new release, and then you and I give our opinions and use the patented sound opinions. Buy it, burn it, trash it scale. It's a trash it record. God, I hate this record. Wow. This record was painful. I knew you were going to want to go on and on and on about it. I listened to it <laughs> six or seven times. I was trying not to listen when I was driving because I knew I'd wind up off the road. It's boring, it's boring, it's boring. Now, I know I am marking myself as a heretic for saying this. There is not supposed to be any rock critic, any popular music critic in the world who does not pay homage to Joni Mitchell. I think Joni's best days are far behind her. I didn't like her turn to jazz. 
look, with friends like Herbie Hancock and Sufjan Stevens, I'm not so sure that's something to be proud of. Yeah, she had her moment. It's long past. Here, she's doing these jazzy soundscapes paired with this protest music. Shine on rising oceans and evaporating seas. Shine on our Frankenstein technologies. It's like, oh, man! Shine on rising oceans and evaporating seas. Shine on our Frankenstein technologies. You know, it, 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 it was painful. It was dreadful. It was pretentious. It was a trash at record. Wow, that's uh, brutal. You know, she's a wonderful songwriter. I think she's written some of the best songs of the last 40 years. Are any of them on this record? No, no. that's the problem. <laughs> Actually, there is one on this record. The one we played at the very outside of this segment, Big Yellow Taxi. When I listen to that song and you think about those lyrics, I mean, you think about a line like, they pay paradise and put up a parking lot. Well, that, yeah, in a microcosm, in a nutshell, tells you everything you need to know Starbucks about the ecology movement. Yeah. She's calling it Big Yellow yeah. Taxi 2007. <laughs> she's got, you know, what? what how much pollution and, and just corporatization is Starbucks contributing to the world well, and to sell that song which is her only hit to move units in the coffee shop is so cynical I think it's impossible for an artist of her stature and her age to do anything else at this point so yeah there is a disconnect there there's no doubt about it my big problem with this record though is where's the poetry I mean Joni Mitchell's a poet and the music in some cases is beautiful there's an instrumental track that kicks off the album one week last summer this jazz bow phase that you hate so much i actually think she's uh, you know the harmonics and her chords and voicings are incredible i mean she's a brilliant musician As a lyricist, I think she's a brilliant lyricist, but I don't hear that brilliant lyricism on this record. When she gets away from the protests and the ecology and the finger-pointing, there's a song called Night of the Iguana, named after the Tennessee Williams play, which is just one brilliant turn of a phrase after another in that song. And I'm thinking, that's the Joni Mitchell I love, the Joni Mitchell of Big Yellow Taxi. She brings it back on this record because this record is largely concerned with the fate of the planet. It's turning into an ugly place, and we've made it that. But when she starts pointing those fingers and starts going off on, you know, you take with such entitlement, you give bad attitude, you have no grace, no empathy, no gratitude. Joni, tell me something I don't know. I know the world's going to hell in a handbasket. I know we're killing the planet. Yeah. I want some poetry there. I don't want finger pointing from, from Joni Mitchell. And I'd prefer and not to get it at the coffee shop. Yeah, and we get a lot of it on this record, unfortunately. Joni's always worth hearing. The music itself is beautiful. She does a lot with her more limited vocal range. I, I'd have to give it a burn, though, because the lyrics are way, way too strident. Celibacy thing Lord, it's got something over me Like an addict I could really use a thing You know what I'm talking about Yeah Greg, that's a song called Celibacy Blues. Poor Jill Scott is suffering on her third album, The Real Thing, Words and Sounds, Volume 3. At least in that song, she's suffering. 
Who is Jill Scott? Yes, well, that is the question that was posed in 2000, seven years ago now with her debut album, which scored an impressive total of four Grammy nominations and sold 2.4 million records, really established this Philadelphia singer and songwriter as one of the most powerful voices, as well as one of the most appealing personalities in the so-called neo-soul or natural R&B movement. Other practitioners would be Erica Badu, Angie Stone, our friend Lauren Hill. You know, I think Jill was realer in a lot of ways than any of them. She would ride around Philadelphia on the bus and write her impressions of her community and her city and African-American life. And, you know, it, it was poetic. She, she has written poetry as much as she's written songs, and she has a killer voice. Two live albums. hasn't been really prolific with the studio albums. As I said, in seven years, this is only her third what is she giving us here? We'll get into that. Let's play a track. This is, I think, the standout on the record. It's called Hate on Me. Jill's been through some stuff since her last album. She's gone through a painful divorce. And this song in particular isn't so much about that, but about people around her who she grew up with. As I said, she's tried very hard to stay real, to stay in touch with her community. She's an activist. She's a poet. She she is not a Hollywood star kind of performer in any way, shape, or form. Here she's singing about, no matter where I live, despite the things I give, you'll always be this way. Go ahead and hate on me, hater. She's talking about people who would bring her down just because she's had some success doing what she loves to do, which is singing. Here's Jill Scott. on me from Jill Scott, her new record, The Real Thing. That's a side of Jill Scott we don't hear that often. I wish we heard it more often. Uh, sassy, defiant Jill Scott. Jim, you said she's got a great voice. I completely agree. But one of the reasons that she is the anti-diva diva 
is that her approach to singing is so conversational. She makes yeah. it sound like she's having a conversation with the listener as opposed to impressing the listener with the, the multi-octave range, which the she Mariah Carey multi-octave trilling, yeah. You, you don't hear that on her records. She, she's not a showboat. At the same time, it's a, it's a beautiful voice capable of many different moods and styles. You heard it on that track with a more sassy and defined approach. You heard it on the Celibacy Blues track, which she was channeling a little bit of Billie Holiday uh, on that one. Between those two stylistic poles, you have a lot of boot-knocking music on this record. Uh, <laughs> I can't put it any other way, Jim. Kind of goes uh, against the celibacy blues. Yeah, she's I know. Whist- Crown Royal, that's right. the moment I'm thinking yeah. of. And, and, and she sort of builds up to that point at the end of the record where she's talking about sex in very explicit terms. Up until that point, she's talking about the lack of sex in her life and about the fact that she has gone through this painful divorce. So she's basically chronicling this relationship, the downfall of uh, this relationship she had and going through a period where she was without a man and finally finding a man at the end of the record. I think it's all beautifully done. I love the way the voice is layered. She's having interior conversations with herself, numerous Jill Scotts talking to each other on various tracks. She makes her whispers sound funky and syncopated. Mm -hmm. She's got a sense of groove and even the most uh, quiet moments on this record. Back on my back, old fashion is renewed. Red toenail polish on white walls. Documenting this freaking. I must remember to thank him later. I think the one fallback on this record, the one failing of this record, is that there are not more songs with the big hooks like Hate On Me. Yeah, absolutely. I wish there were more hooks on this record. I think it's a very good record, but I have to give it a burn it because I think she's capable of writing those hooks. I just don't hear enough of them on this record. I'm with you, and it breaks my heart to say that because I love Jill Scott. I think that this is the first time in her career that she's sounding a bit shopworn and sleepy at times. Hate On Me is this explosion of energy. That's why it gets a burn it for me. You need to hear that song. That's a buy it song. Yeah. I mean, if it was a single, you just wanted maybe to just download that to your iPod, okay? It's a killer track. I wish there was more anger and sass and, and spunk fighting back from this ruined relationship, which she'd invested so much in and sang about a lot on her last album. Yeah, the rest of it is just is just too tired and sleepy, you know? <laughs> I, I wish more jazz. I'm, I'm, it's like, I'll just admit it. I'm allergic to jazz, all right? Someday when I'm old and 75 and retired and sitting I'll figure out jazz, okay? But right now, I need a little more up-tempo, especially from someone as groovy previously as Jill Scott. So two burnets from Jim and I on the Jill Scott record, The Real Thing. We're going to be back with a review of The Boss, Bruce Springsteen's first studio record with the E Street Band in five years. That's coming up next on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.
You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Hit it! That's the Go Team from their second album, Proof of Youth. The song is Titanic Vandalism. Who is the Go Team? A Brighton collective led by one Ian Parton, who started out in classic hip-hop techno fashion as a bedroom auteur, making recordings on his own with a sampler and a synthesizer and a drum machine. Eventually expanded out to a band. A couple of people in the group now for playing live, and a fantastic cheerleader, singer, rapper, just presence on stage named Ninja. (laughs) We talked about the Go Team a couple of years ago. They came to Chicago and played the Intonation Music Festival, which is the predecessor of the uh, Pitchfork Festival, blew us away. Big celebratory, just, uh, you know, jumping jack. There's a lot of that kind of double Dutch playground rhyming, everybody jumping up and down in place thing happening. And when Ninja saw some young African-American kids getting out of the pool, which was part of the park that uh, was not part of the festival, she asked them to bring down the fence and bring these kids on stage. And all these little kids were surrounding her and jumping up and down. It was this great, great moment, one of the best festival moments I've ever experienced. That is their music in a nutshell, this big party sound. Second album comes around. They had their dalliance with a major label. Now they're back on the indies. In fact, on America's most respected indie, Sub Pop Records. The 2005 debut is called Thunder Lightning Strike. I think I know you're going to say there's not too much of a difference here on Proof of Youth. We'll get into the nitty-gritty of that. But let's play a song first from Ian Parton and the Go Team. This is called Grip Like a Vice on Sound Opinions. Curve in every 
Grip Like a Vice from the Go Team, the new record, Proof of Youth. Jim, as you can hear, a very dense, busy mix, very similar to what they did on Thunder Lightning Strike. Loves his samples, very horn-heavy. Car chase horns is the way, best way to describe it. It's like you, you, you watch those TV shows from the early 80s. Somebody's driving through an alley, and you hear yeah, these horns yeah. blaring in the background. Well, the difference is the first album, he had to sample them because yeah. he had no money. He's making a record in his bedroom. Now he's got a little bit of money. Those are live horns yeah. this time. He's doing a little bit of, uh, still doing a little bit of sampling. He's mi- mixing it up with the live instruments, as you said. A lot of that double Dutch chanting. There's not really a lot of singing on this record. There's a lot of chanting, a lot of these cheerleading type of vocals on the record. I think the production aesthetic borrows very heavily from what Public Enemy was doing in in the late 80s, early 90s. Absolutely. Uh, the, well, and you know, Chuck D makes an appearance here. Absolutely, and it's very appropriate that Chuck D is at the end of the record. It's interesting to me, Jim, though, despite all the personality here, Chuck D is the is the biggest personality on this record. I, I, I think these tracks tend to blend together after a while. I don't hear any standout moments on this record. I think they've got a cool sound. It's fun to watch this band live. I think this is a very difficult record to listen to, though. The production really? is teeny, teeny 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 this is a perfect band for the mp3 generation because they listen to you know they listen to their music on really crappy sound systems this is a really crappy sounding lo-fi record normally i don't have a problem with that kind of there's no bottom end when i want when i want to hear funky dance music i want to hear some bottom end this is all teeny high end it's very woolly sounding the vocals seem very buried in the mix you know what it it sounds like it's coming through an old-fashioned boom box yeah playground that's what it sounds like and it's but i like that it's an you know one or two songs like that kind of a nice little new flavor but an entire album that stuff sorry i can't i can't handle it and this is essentially a repeat of what they did the last time no i don't see the reason to own two go team records if you own one get thunder lightning strike you don't need this one i knew you were gonna rain on this parade this is a great album it it really makes me smile serious a great it's a great album it makes me smile it makes me you're gonna tell people to buy this record i'm gonna tell them to buy it i'm gonna tell them to buy two copies you need one for the car you need one for at home if you got a boom box at a playground you need three I love this record. The energy is irrepressible, Greg, and I think the production is fascinating because Parton has a foot in two worlds. One of them is old-school hip-hop. I mean, he knows the cutting edge, what's happening today, but he goes deep. I mean, he goes way deep to the Bronx in the mid-'80s, and there are samples and stuff from that era here, as well as paying homage to Chuck D and inviting him on. He's also steeped in sonic youth, noise, avant, terrorism, and and My Bloody Valentine. I mean, he's an indie rocker, and he's bringing those textures and merging them with hip-hop. And on top of that, you get the Jackson 5 horns, right? (laughs) I mean, it's great fun. I love this record. I think there are some fine, fine songs. Grip Like a Vice is one of them. Patricia's Moving Picture, My World. I'm telling you, this album makes me smile every time I play it. I was using this as the antidote to get over listening to Joni Mitchell. So this is a buy-it record as far as I'm concerned. Jim, I have to say, that's crazy. I would not spend good cash money on this record. Burn this record. Listen to it on your crappy sound system. That's when it's going to sound best. One song at a time. Twelve songs of this at one time is way, way too much. At best, this is a burn-it record. Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band reunited yet again. 
uh, on a new record called Magic. They're channeling a little bit of Tommy Two-Tone. <laughs> 8675309, Jenny. Remember that song, 1982? That is Radio Nowhere. That's at least the riff from Radio Nowhere, the first single from Magic. Springsteen back with the E Street Band. This relationship has been a rocky one in the 70s and 80s. Springsteen and the E Street Band, they forged a, a collaboration, which a lot of people considered the best live band of that era, and then went their separate ways for about a good decade plus. Springsteen experimenting with different lineups, solo projects, bringing the E Street Band back into the fold for a big comeback tour in 1999-2000, and has been working with them sporadically ever since. They recorded a studio record together in 2002 called The Rising, in part inspired, if that's the correct use of that word, by the 9-11 tragedy. Springsteen running a batch of songs in, in the wake of that. Uh, it's a big band. They need big yeah, themes. Big, yeah, exactly. And they got a big theme with that record. Springsteen has since done a, a solo record, and he has made a record with the Pete Seeger band, string band. Yeah, alternating um, projects that don't sell with the, <laughs> the, the ones that do, which are the E Street records. Yes, well, he can go on the road with the E Street band and sell out arenas around the world, and that's what he's doing again this fall and well into next year behind this new record. Let's hear a track from it. It's called The Last to Die from Bruce Springsteen and the E Street band on the new record Magic on Sound Opinions. No mistaking those marbles in that mouth. That is Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. Last to die from his new album and their new album, Magic. Greg, I let you choose the two tracks, and I'm glad you chose the ones you did. Radio Nowhere, which we came in with, and Last to Die, which we just played. Because I think they both stink in comparisons to uh, fellow uh, fellow Roots rockers who, who actually say what they mean in more graphic terms. When Neil Young is talking about the war in Iraq, as opposed to what Bruce just did, he's singing Living with War. He's, he's saying impeach the president, he's naming names, he's angry, he's aggravated, he's telling the truth. When... Tom Petty 
is singing about the dire state state of radio in this uh, century. He's singing The Last DJ, and he's taking on uh, Clear Channel by name, okay? Bruce is always pulling his punches. John Landau, his longtime manager, former rock critic, the man who wrote I Have Seen Rock and Roll Future, and its name is Bruce Springsteen, which uh, the standard joke is he should have written I've Seen John Landau's Future, and its name is Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> he's been selling this album in two ways. He's been saying it's, it's not a political record, not a political record, and he's saying that because he wants to get back those fans who were alienated by Bruce's, uh, you know, admirably liberal pro worker, you know, pro-regular guy kind of uh, politics, okay? And uh, he's been turning people off in recent years, Bruce, and Landau wants those people back. The other thing he's saying, this is the record where he really rocks again. This is the gutsy rock and roll record, which in the E Street Band terms means going back to the 50s, to a 50s that never was. That's Bruce's universe, wow. where, where 50s rock and roll comes together with soul and gospel and doo-wop and country, and we all know the Springsteen shtick, and if you've ever listened to this show for any time, you know, I don't buy this. Springsteen shtick. My dad grew up in Asbury Park, New Jersey. I grew up in Jersey City, New Jersey. I don't ever recognize the America, much less the Jersey this guy sings about. Wow. You know, and you know that, and we've talked about this and we've fought about it for years. I don't buy the rock and rollness of this record because the way he made it with Brendan O'Brien is the E Street Band would fly in once a week on the weekend and do tracks, and then the whole rest of the week, the boss and Brendan O'Brien, the Pearl Jam producer who he's been working with uh, Springsteen the last couple of years, they would do vocals. So the band wasn't even in the same room playing at the same time. And I think there's a distance between Springsteen's always mushy-mouthed vocals and the group this time. It all sounds graft on. It sounds like an homage to a, an E Street band, which itself was an homage to a 50s Spectre wall of sound. It's a copy of a copy of a copy. I've heard it before. It stinks. Trash it. Well, you're just talking about the Go Team as this construct record. And, uh, yeah, good. That was this good. Is, this is a bad one. Yeah, this is bad. And, yeah. and, I, and I'm also glad to hear that you uh, enjoy being bludgeoned over the head with really obvious political lyrics, which I frankly don't. I have to say, this is the first Springsteen and E Street band record that I really think works since uh, maybe The River, maybe the first one in 27 years that I think is really kind of a capturing <laughs> that sound that people want. Uh, it's a guitar-driven record. Saxophone and piano are there to ornament the sound rather than be showboating solo instruments. He's dialed back on these kind of Celtic gospel country overtones that I think made the rising sound very soft and fussy. This is a much more uh, focused hard rock Springsteen record in the mold of the great records that he made with the E Street Band right around the time of the river, Darkness on the Edge of Town. That's the template for this record. I am really glad to hear him back making that kind of record again. I'm not saying it's as good as those records, but it's right in the pocket. This could have been a logical follow-up to the river. And secondly, yes, I do like the way he's evoking the mood of the times. It's unmistakable what he's talking about and what these songs are informed about. You'd have to be a total idiot not to get what he's saying here. It, it doesn't have to beat you over the head. It is a record informed by the war and by the kind of country we have, we have become. You know, I was saddened to hear this record. It made me think about what we have become, and I think he's done it beautifully. And I, you know, I, I'm a just, Springsteen fan. Yeah, you but are. I have not You're loved, an apologist. I, I have not loved his records for a long time, and I and I do like this record quite a bit. The guy is a strong the guy record. Is a, a cornpone hokum peddler. Okay, <laughs> listen to "Long Walk Home." Right, the flag flying over the courthouse means certain things are set in stone. Who are we? What'll we do? And what we won't? You flag flying over the courthouse means certain. Go down to 
Louisiana, Louisiana, and talk about the flag flying over the courthouse. Because he's idealizing a lost era of innocence that never existed in this country. You, you've, you've been, been watching the, the war on he's PBS. About his, I'm not misreading he's having, it. He's having a dialogue with his father in the song. His father said, this is what we stood for. And Springsteen saying, this is what we are now, which is nothing like what you told me about. He wants to go back to what we stood for. Everything about Springsteen has always been retro. He's always idealized a past in America, a past sound that, that never was all that rosy. You know what I mean? The guy's never lived in the present. He is a typical nostalgic baby boomer. And that's what's always, I mean, you know, he is, <laughs> he is the epitome of the baby boom generation and everything that is wrong with it. If you think this is a nostalgic record, then I think you're crap. Of course it's a nostalgic record. He's talking about magic. He wants to go back to the times of magic, you know? No, he doesn't. He doesn't, doesn't want to be disillusioned by the guy behind the curtain. The, the guy the guy in magic is sawing a woman in half and she's smiling at him. If that's not a metaphor for what's going on in this country, I don't know what is. Jim, you missed the point of the song again, and this is a buy it record. Enough from us, Greg. If uh, people want to weigh in on Springsteen Pro or Con, they're invited to go to soundopinions.org where they can send us an email about that subject, about anything we ever talk about, and you can check out the footnotes for the show with more information. We'll be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with two more albums from PJ Harvey and the Foo Fighters. You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. the pretender from the new Foo Fighters record echoes silence, patience, and grace. <laughs> wow. It's kind of like our uh, radio show every week. <laughs> There's a mouthful. Sixth record from the Foo Fighters. Jim, if you and I had taken a bet 
in the mid-90s and said, hmm, how many records do you think Dave Grohl is yeah. going to make? <laughs> know. You know, you think former this guy's got more than, yeah, the former drummer in Nirvana. How many records is this guy going to make? You think I remember, one or two, and then he's going to have a great career as yeah, a session drummer. I remember fighting on the radio about the merits of the first Foo Fighters record with yeah. uh, rock critic Bill Wyman, who was saying, you know, he, his argument was, it, it's just like a monkey that can type. You, you don't care what the <laughs> typing sounds like, you're just surprised this guy made a record. Because drummers aren't supposed to have a big, successful career. And, and let's face it, Dave Grohl, a uh, monster drummer, when he came into Nirvana, he was the last of a rotating series of drummers in that band. Nirvana became a truly great band. I mean, he, he played a, a really important role in that band. They were the alternative uh, rock band that uh, turned around that entire era in the early 90s, and Grohl was a big part of that. After Kurt Cobain died, Dave Grohl started to make solo records as the Foo Fighters. He has since gone on to make six Foo Fighters records, double the studio (laughs) output of Nirvana. And in that time, you know, we can joke all we want about the drummer making records, but this has become one of the most reliable rock bands in terms of commercial success over the last decade. They are consistently on the radio. They consistently do well on their tours. You can name very few rock bands that have had the lifespan of the Foo Fighters over the last 10, 12 years and done as consistently well as they have. They're the last grunge band standing. They are indeed. So we have the sixth record from the Foo Fighters, Echoes, Silence, Patience, and Grace. And here's a track from it. We're going to review it in a second. It's called Summer's End on Sound Opinions. Goodness, Summer's End by Dave Grohl and the Foo Fighters. Greg, I swear, I think the Black Crows would be too embarrassed and ashamed to sing that kind of hokum about sweet Virginia and cherry wine and moonshine (laughs) in your hair. What a crock that is. I think Grohl is one of the biggest phonies in rock history. 
he positions the Foo Fighters as the you know a lark. It's just I, I love to rock. You know, Nirvana ended. This is my labor of love, and uh, he is often called. If you do a search on this, you'll find hundreds of references. The nicest man in rock. In fact, he is not. He is a mercenary. He has crafted through corporate rock machinations that, that that Aerosmith would be proud of a solid career for this band by selling out to anybody who will buy. <laughs> the first record, yes, it was a lark. It was a surprise. It was great. Since then, he has. Uh, milked this formula, and it is the Nirvana formula. Cobain didn't invent it. They're also, you know, did it come from the Pixies? Hey, it came from Louis Louis. It's as old as rock and roll itself. The quiet verse, the big yeah, chorus, right. repeat, repeat, repeat. Grohl has nothing to say. The guy is one of the worst lyricists in the history of rock and roll. He just repeats and repeats and repeats. The only thing he has going for him is this knack for bubblegum hooks. He's the master of the earworm. I've been having that stupid Summer's End Cherry Wine Sweet Virginia song. I can't get it out of my head. And it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. I don't know why people like this band. Echo, Silence, Patience and Grace is a quadruple trash it record as far as I'm concerned. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, the, the reason so many people like them is they're very easy to understand. I mean, this is, there's not a lot of complexity here. This guy's got two modes. He writes these kind of melodic, hard and fast songs in the mold of his heroes, Husker Du. Much more polished, though. Much more polished. And then he's got the cream-filled power ballads. And on this record, he's expanding. He's trying to show his range lately. I don't know if you noticed that. Oh, I I didn't even get into the ballad of the Beaconsfield Miners, which is the little bluegrass thing. He has decided to venture into bluegrass and acoustic music. He's a journeyman talent. As a as a as a songwriter, he's a great drummer. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I agree. It's it's remarkable. I think through his uh, strictly through his hard work and ambition, does he have a six album career that is this successful? But as a songwriter, you know, it's a formula. We've heard the formula. We are now on the sixth album of that formula. I don't really know why people need to own another Foo Fighters record. If you have one in your collection. That's plenty. You don't need to burn this record. You don't need to, to own this record. You can ignore this record. <laughs> I take it that's a trash it. That's a trash it. That was a song called Devil from White Chalk, the new album from Polly Jean Harvey. Long, one of the most powerful voices, I think, of the alternative rock generation. A female counterpoint to Cobain, if you will. What a talent. We haven't heard from her since 2004 with Uh Uh-Huh. Her. <laughs> a very hard title to uh, to pronounce. That one was uh, described in my favorite review by a uh, Irish critic who called it a coroner's report written by a poet. And boy, that's upbeat compared <laughs> to the new one, White Chalk. The title is a reference to the uh, Chalk Hills of England's 
Dorset countryside, which uh, Polly Jean Harvey grew up in and still lives in. Two radical things about this album. Number one, it's the first in her career where she is writing and playing primarily on piano. She's known as a guitarist with a banshee wail, a ferocious voice, and a guitar that's just as ferocious. Here, it's all about the grand piano. And the vocal style is very, very different. It's almost sort of a, a uh, innocent little girl mm-hmm. approach. No banshee wail, no guitar. What does this mean? It's hard to talk much more about it without getting into uh, opinions. So let's just play a song and then we'll give our thoughts on this record. Let's play the title track, Greg. White Chalk from Polly Jean Harvey on Sound Opinions. I get chills up my spine every time I hear that. That is the uh, title Creepy song, song from the new Polly Jean Harvey record, White Chalk. Jim, as you mentioned, she's never sounded quite like this before. We think about her uh, investigating extremes, usually at the harder edge of the sound spectrum. Here she is all soft and ghost-like. And in fact, I think this is a an amazing piece of theater where mm-hmm. Polly Jean is uh, impersonating a variety of ghosts on this record. There's a lot of unborn children on this record. There are conversations with her dead grandmother. There are intimations of an apparition drifting through her past and investigating what went wrong. There, there are crimes committed, <laughs> yeah. and she's admitting to some of them, but not all of them. It's, it's a really creepy, dark, scary record. And that's saying something. She's one of those artists that never takes anything lightly. And, and I think she also, at the same time, I, I don't buy that she is this depressed person or this 
necessarily creepy person. I think there's an element of theater in her yeah. stuff where she does exaggerate and amplify the stuff. And I love that. I, I think her other her masterpiece, uh, To Bring You My Love, was also a record crafted where she learned a new instrument. She started playing a lot of songs on an electric keyboard, an mm-hmm. organ. And she was working at the time with a producer named Flood, who has done uh, great things with Nine Depeche Inch Nails, Mode, to Smashing Mode. Pumpkins. And uh, she's working with him again on this record. Learns a new instrument, goes back in the studio with Flood. He's very subtle on this record, surrounds her with these kind of very atmospheric, very moody soundscapes, but not too in your face. It's all very subtle and below the surface. You know, we mentioned with the Jill Scott record, the hooks aren't really jumping out at you. Mm. But man, oh man, give this thing a little time and it creeps under your skin. I love this record. This is a buy it record all the way. I agree. I'm a buy it. I love this record as well. You got to give it some time. What this is, is a great gothic novel. I think that the reason she's singing in this style is to evoke the contrast of innocence. The little girl in her white dress wandering through the woods and all the evil dark things that are there <laughs> about to swallow her whole. Mm-hmm. It's all very like uh, Mary Shelley. It's a creepy sketch. This is the Halloween record, right? <laughs> yeah, we don't exactly. have to do a Halloween show this year. This we're just going to play this record because exactly. it works. Right. But yeah, double, uh, double buy it on White Chalk by Polly Jean Harvey. All right, Jim, that wraps it up. Just to recap, Joni Mitchell's new record, I gave it a burn it and you gave it a trash it. Jill Scott, we both said burn it on that one. PJ Harvey, we both love that one. Let's buy that record. Bruce Springsteen, I said buy it. You said trash it. Go team, I said trash it. You said buy it. And on the Foo Fighters, we both said trash it. So there you go. That's a lot of records. Uh, We're going to be back with more music reviews and music news next week. Greg, as always, Sound Opinions is produced by Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. We have a new intern. We're burning through him. We'll see if this one lasts. (laughs) Dave Mahler has joined us. And as always, our fearless leader, our executive producer, the man who inspires us like nobody besides Polly Jean Harvey, Tori Southside Malatia. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, one 859 1800. Hey, this is uh, Scott Gimple, North Hollywood, California. About, uh, I think, two shows ago, you were talking about the music industry. There had been a long article in the New York Times on Rick Rubin and uh, the decline and fall of the record industry. He had been talking about going to a subscription service of like $19 a month. Why wouldn't the record industry just consider significantly lowering the prices of all their music? And uh, I don't know, possibly, I don't know, but ads in the liner notes? You know, put free samples of gum in there, like baseball cards, whatever they got to do. But why not have $5, $4, $3 CDs? Uh, Fantastic show. Really, it's uh, one of my favorite parts of the week is listening to it. Thanks. Hey, guys. uh, This is Annika calling from Knoxville, Tennessee. I had all these comments I wanted to leave about the last three uh, episodes. And then you mentioned the Young Marble Giants. Bravo. Uh, I had goosebumps just hearing you guys talk about it. You know, along with my Soundtrack to Head and my X-Ray Specs album, that is 
one album that I really feel lucky to have in my collection. Nice to hear and good know about the box set. So thanks for that. Keep up the good work. Bye. My name is Tyler James Kemp from Fullerton, California. Just want to say I love you guys' show, and I was wondering when I might hear an episode about album art. It's one aspect or side of music I just feel like we haven't heard much about on Sound Opinions, and I'd love to hear an episode about and along those lines. Hope you guys are well. Thanks again. See ya. What's up, guys? This is Chad from Fort Wayne, Indiana. I was cruising through Chicago and heard your show today for the first time. Thanks so much for the interview with Midlake. Yes, I'm sorry that I missed you. I'm sorry that I missed you. And also the review of Eddie Vedder's solo album. I'm going to go out and pick up both of those albums as a result of your show. And uh, also going to go back and definitely check out the Flaming Lips interview from last week. So thanks so much for a great program. I plan on listening online every week. Thanks, guys. You're always chasing after dear. Oh, my dear. Oh, my dear. Hi, this is Ryan calling from Houston, Texas. Uh, just listened to the Midlake show. Wow, what a great show. Those guys are awesome uh, musicians. Great album. Nice guys. Really good stories. Everything was great. I do have one comment, though. At the end, you mentioned you're reviewing the new Bruce Springsteen album. And I don't know why you guys even bother to do this, because it's obvious what's going to happen. You know, Jim's going to hate it. Greg's either going to hate it or give it a burn it or something like that. The summer kind of thing happened with the Gwen Stefani album and the, the least, most recently the 50 Cent album, which were obviously terrible. So why are you wasting <laughs> everyone's time by doing this and instead maybe do something good. So I have a theory. It's either you keep these reviews on because A, you want to be diverse, or B, you uh, actually have something interesting to say about the albums, even though they might be bad. Maybe there's something unique to talk about. Or C, you're just doing it <laughs> as a bet between each other, kind of like the Rush album. Does Jim owe Greg one for reviewing the Rush album a couple months ago and now you have to do the E Street album? I don't know. Anyway, just my thoughts. Love the show. Keep it up. Except for that. I don't like that. Talk to you later. Bye. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.